Shalom and welcome to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. This is a recording of Rabbi Adam Klickfeld's weekly Rashi study class. Hello to whatever time you are, if you are listening to this on the Temple Beth Am podcast. Here we are really, 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 really at the end of uh, Parshat Shemot. We've been, we've been close to the end for quite some time. I still don't think we're going to finish today. Uh, which is good because then um, we like to finish Parshas with a bit of a seum and um, we'll see if we can time it for the next time we can meet in person and invite people to bring some snacks and maybe share some Devray Torah from this Parsha, which we've been studying for a very long time. Um, I think that we read, but I'm not sure that we finished the Rashi on chapter five, verse 20, the word vayifgu. Um, I know we brought up the connection to Datan Abiram, but I'm not sure we said everything about we were, what we wanted to say about it. So let's start from that again. Chapter five, verse 20, I'll read the verse. Um, we'll read the Rashi quickly, and then I'll bring a, a couple of other things on screen for us to compare it to. So the verse. Vayifgu et Moshev yet Haron. We're not going to re- legislate all the questions about who's doing the meeting, but it seems to be that the Shotrim who had an audience with Pharaoh, uh, the Israelite officials, meet Moshe and Aaron, Nitzabim Likratam, who was the one who was doing the Nitzab, who, who was standing to greet them? Were Moshe and Aaron waiting for them to come out of Pharaoh's palace? Did the Shoftim position themselves, <coughs> excuse me, specifically so that they would run into them? Whoever is doing the Nitzabim, Betzaytam Mi'it Paro, when they left Pharaoh. And what Rashi said on that, if you look, is um, on, on Bayifku, um, Anashim Yisrael. So he says, who's the who's the Neither the Shoftim nor Moshe and Aaron, but other random Israelites. They came out to meet Moses and Aaron. When when did they come to meet out? When the Shoftim left Pharaoh's presence. And so now we had had Pharaoh, uh, Moshe and Aaron in Pharaoh's presence, and you had Shoftim in uh, Aaron, uh, Pharaoh's presence. Other Israelites station themselves to say, what's the status? We've had uh, two delegations into Pharaoh to make life easier for us. What's the status? Darshu, and our sages darshaned out, Shakol Nitzim Benitzavim. Anytime you have Nitzim or Nitzavim, except for the Parshat Nitzavim, Datan Aviram Hayu. Those are Datan Aviram, the two uh, colleagues of um, Korach who participated in that rebellion. Shinamar Bahem, because it says about them, Yatsu Nitzavim. When, when we had Datan Aviram in Korach's um, rebellion, I'll bring this up so you don't have to go flipping for it. Um, again, we did look at this last week, but I wanted to linger on it a bit slower. Uh, in Parshat Korach, uh, they they left the living places of Korach, the Tan Aviram Misabi, with the Tan Aviram around them, the Datan Aviram Yatsu Nitzavi. They came out Nitzavim. This is called a this is a midrashic uh, game where if you have a word here and a word there, then we can connect the contexts more than they seem obvious to be connected, and therefore. Not just this case, but in every case, you have a nitzavim or you have a nitzim. And even though nitzavim and nitzavim are not um, the same etymology, they have uh, alliteration. It's the tan And just to remind you, 
<clears throat> most of you were in class when we did this, when Moshe is also confronting an Egyptian and trying to make things uh, easier on the Israelites for the first time. So there is a, um, and one, the, our scene evokes this previous scene. By Moshe went out on the second day after he smote the <clears throat> Egyptian. There were two Hebrew men who were Nitzim, who were grappling or fighting. And Rashi on that says, They are the ones who, um, who are doing this Nitzim. So what that does for our scene, is to suggest there are three camps of Israelites who are mentioned, plus the rest of the Israelites. And that's what we left the last week, that you have, I think Barry made this point, that you have this kind of, like overlapping internecine battles amongst the Israelites um, with the people clamoring for the authorities to be able to make an impact on their lives. And you have rabble rousers because that's what happens when people are not satisfied. So you have Tatan Vaviram who like to join rebellions. They're coming in and saying, hey, what's the situation? You tried to make things better. You actually made things worse. And we want some satisfaction. Okay, so I wanted to, we kind of ended with that last week. I wanted to like start with that and see if there were lingering comments on it before we push to the next verse. I see, I see Norm or Rachel's hand up. Yes, I thought this would be a good time to point out that um, in the Bird's Head Haggadah, a very famous Haggadah in which the Jews are portrayed as having bird's heads, there was long a wondering about why it is that there were two with bird's heads on the Egyptian chariots chasing the Jews as they left. And it took a nine-year-old son of a scholar who was a student at an Orthodox day school to say, well, of course, that's Dasan the Navi room. But what, um, what's the bird connection? Um, nobody really knows, but there's this very famous Haggadah illustrated I think Haggadah. it's on display at the Israel Museum. It is on display at the Israel Museum, the original. Um, mm. But the Jews are portrayed as birds. They are, they, they're human beings with birds' heads. Mm. Um, and it's as Haggadahs go, it's pretty famous. Wow. Okay. And so uh, a student saw that and then... Some 10-year-old uh, saw this and he wasn't bothered by it at all. And his father says... Don't you know? She said, well, of course, that's, that's not an other room. The father had never thought of that. It was never not in the scholarly literature about it. Wow. Wow. I'd love, to, I'd, love to see, I'd love to see that particular image. Uh, if someone wants to, somebody wants to use Rabbi Google and pull up that particular image for, for us to look at uh, today, that would be great. Um, hold on one second. I'm just going to make it a little bit lighter and uh, brighter in this room because it's a little bit dark. One second. Norm, were the um, Egyptians not birds? I don't remember. Were they yes, birds? The Egyptians are not birds. So what are they? I are don't they... remember. Yeah, me neither. Um, there was a thing that you, for a long time, you couldn't show people's faces because it was idolatrous, right? So that's where the, the animals came from. But um, nobody remembers um, how the Egyptians were uh, portrayed? I do not. Yeah. I didn't know about it in the first place, so I still don't remember that. Um Okay, anything else on this Nitzavim, Datan Aviram, the layers of authority here before we jump to verse 21? Going once, going twice. Okay, um, Rebecca Friedman, do you want to read verse 21? Okay. V'yomru alehem, yere Adonai alehem, 
Vayishpot, Asher Hiv Ashtem et Reche Nu, Beene Paro, Uveene Avadav, Latet Cherev, Beyadam, Lahargegu, Lahargenu. Good. And before we begin translating, remember that how one understands the previous verse will determine who one thinks is the subject of this verse, because the Vayomru is someone speaking to someone else. But we don't have we don't have unanimity as to who is the antecedent subject of the verbs here. Most people understand it to be the Shotrim, who just left uh, Pharaoh's presence, but Ra- that's not how Rashi reads it. But you're entitled to translate it how you, how you like. Mm. Um, and they said to them, it's just they, and they said to them, um, may God look upon you and judge um, because you made... Uh, well, this says you made <clears throat> you made our savior to be abhorred in the eyes of Pharaoh and in the eyes of his servants. Our savior? That's how this translates it. Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. Our our savior, S-A-V-O-U-R. Right, savior. Like, like our our odor or our our odor, our reah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Because you made our our scent to be. Uh, abhorred in the eyes of Pharaoh and the eyes of his servants to put a sword in their hand to kill us. Right. Very good. Right. So um, trying to think of the right place to zoom in first. Let's zoom in the word hivashtem. The root of hivashtem is bet aleph shin. And let me show you BDB on bet aleph shin. Right. So baash to have a bet smell. To stink, bisa. You might have, you know, might, might know the uh, uh, Hebrew slang basa is a basa. Is a basa is Arabic from like what? What a stinky situation. This is a basa. So the Arabic basa or bisa that becomes uh, basa in Hebrew slang is probably related to this root baash, to be evil or to stink. Um, and uh, we're gonna have it later. You'll see here in a couple of chapters. The very thing that the whoever speaking this verse thinks they now smell like, as it were, it's a metaphor to the Egyptians. That's exactly how Nile is going to smell when the uh, when everything is turned to blood, right? So it's that notion. You have also here um, that things are growing with worms and stinking. So it has to do with a st- like it. It's like a word that means simultaneously stinkiness, actual stinkiness odor, but also foul, evil with a moral stain on it, okay? If you put that into our verse, he vashtem is to, is a he feel. So let's assume that it's the, it's the Shotrim who are speaking, talking to Moshe and Aaron, he vashtem, he vashtem et rechenu, you've stinkified our smell. You've made us smell awful, Right? You've made, you've turned us to, like we're already wretched. We're slaves. Let's just think about that, right? Like we're, we're we already actually smell because we're slaves and we can't take care of our 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 hygiene. You have made us smell worse. Interesting mixed metaphor in the eyes of Pharaoh, not in the nose of Pharaoh. So the Torah is is like aware that it's using metaphoric language. If that makes sense, like internal to the Torah's logic, it's it's borrowing a metaphor having to do with odor, 
and making it be a visual one. You've made us smell, made our odor smell in the eyes of Pharaoh. It's like I have a toothache on my finger and also in the eyes of his servants. And what do we want to do with latet cherev biadam lahargenu? I think you translated just right, Rebecca. What, what does that phrase mean? That you've put a sword in their hands to kill us. What does that mean? Diane, Larry? Yeah, I want to give you a couple of translations and, and, make, and, a, and a commentary, if I can, about... Please do, but before that, do you want to just give a... Give a what, what, that last phrase, what do you think it's doing there? That you've made us stinkified and, and dot, 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 to put a sword in their hands to kill us. What does that mean? Well, I can only assume that the sword is they're working them to death. Ah, that's interesting. So basically it's, it's the, it's the, you're saying that you're translating the verse kind of with an inverse order that you've made us, you've made us stinky. Um, How? by having put a sword in their hand to kill us, basically by inducing them to work us harder. Is that your, the way you're reading us? That's my simple read, which doesn't really make sense in the context of the verse, I, I, I acknowledge. Okay. So I don't have, I really don't have an answer to that question right now, but I, can, I, can I go back to the stinkification issue? Yeah, go back to the stinkification, then we'll hear the other, the other hands that are up, I see you, but let's go, let's go to the stinkification. So, so first of all, the, the JPS translates as loathsome and Alter translates it as, um, I'm sorry, a repugnant, for you have made us repugnant in the eyes of Pharaoh. And um, um, Arya Kaplan goes a completely different direction and says, um, you have destroyed our reputation with Pharaoh. Hmm. In other words, he... He takes it as a metaphor. He doesn't address it directly. But what, what um, Alter says in his, in his comment, which I think is obvious, I don't think you said this yet, is we've got the olfactory reference in terms of the um, but then we've got the visual reference at, at um, in his eyes. So it can't be that you literally see the stink yeah, I did mention that, right? That, that the Torah is sort of aware of it being metaphorical because it's 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 a reach in someone's eyes, right? It's, it's and um, it's like vayara takolot in uh, in Revelation that they that they saw the voices, right? So, correct. The Torah is the, the Torah isn't is obviously and intentionally using the notion of a stinkification as a metaphor. Correct. That's all I had to say. Okay. Um, I'd like to hear some other comments in just in, in, re, in general reaction to the verse, but in particular, like to figure out what's the cause and the effect of la tetcherev biadam lahargenu. Barry? Well, I'm reminded that uh, we from the Holocaust um, and uh, that we were so stinky that, that we need, they had to get rid of us. Uh, this is like a, a, a horror in their presence and uh, they need to get rid of us. Yeah, and it's interesting because that, that you could put that both on both sides of the fulc- fulcrum. The, the demonization of the Jew is that they're stinky. And then by forcing them to be enslaved or incarcerated, you make them more so, right? I'm thinking of a terrible, terrible and important scene. I, I feel like we mentioned the scene recently in this class, but I don't remember what the context was. In 12 Years a Slave, 
where the the character played by Lapita, I forgot her last name, Luango maybe, um, with the soap, with the soap, right? That all she's trying to do is to just um, uh, find some way to clean her body so that she has a little bit of dignity and that she she doesn't stink for for the others around her, including so she doesn't stink for the master, right? And she's horribly, horribly punished for that. But, so, but if, excuse me, I, I, I think this is a much further, and going back to the Holocaust uh, analogy, that uh, we were so stinky and ugly and bad that that gives them the right to take the sword and get rid of us. Right. So I'm saying that that metaphor works on both sides of oppression, right? So American uh, white plantation owners thought that Black Africans were were stinky, just above the level of animals. And as a result of that, permitted themselves to treat them in such a way that would perpetuate their stinkiness, their actual stinkiness, right? And and what they thought of them. So it actually it becomes both the the um, the, the the raison d'etre and the impact of oppression. Now I'm not sure how much of that is in this verse because we still haven't resolved and will never resolve. Is the giving them a sword to kill us, um, like? the the result of how smelly you've made us like is it you've made things worse for us as a result of that we stink more and our situation stinks more and that gives the egyptians yet one more reason to want to get rid of us or is it as larry was suggesting originally um by putting by giving them a reason to oppress us more that's the end of the verse you've made them increase our um our labors and therefore we stink more so it's it can be put on both sides and it's unclear exactly which way the verse means it. Um, Alan's iPhone would like to speak. All right. First, the, the view, the first view that you said about the smell was not for, from Larry's, but I'm just looking at Mikro Dolot about what Arbarbanel says. And he says that uh, putting the sword in the hands of Slayus, they have long hated us and wanted to kill us. Now we have given them the means and the cause to do so. Uh-huh. Right. So, it, so that, that, next, the, the before and the after. Yeah. Right. And then, and then the one thing about the, the stink in Pharaoh's eyes, something that I hadn't realized, this is from Ibn Ezra. He says that, uh, I, right, because you can't really stink in one's eyes. It doesn't, it doesn't compute. But it says that, as he says, I've already informed you in my comment to Genesis 42.1, because all the senses are gathered together in a single place behind the forehead, the verb appropriate for one sense is often used for another, hmm. as in all the people saw the thunder, yes. as you saw, or see the smell of my son from Genesis 27.27. Is that got to be with, with Isaac and uh and uh, you know, with deceiving him, I don't know where what, what that is. What chapter? Twenty-seven, twenty-seven in Genesis. Yeah. Correct, correct. Yeah. Or uh, how sweet is the light from Ecclesiastes? Okay. the The meaning is, as as Ibn Yona explains, in the opinions of King Pharaoh and his servants, we have become like a bad odor that one cannot stand to smell. Yeah. Yeah. Right, so it's it's not tolerated either by the nose or by the mind that it gets the signals from the nose. Right, so it's a, it's an intolerance of the of the of the entirety of the of the person as a result of what they are taking in from their nose. Great, uh, Rick and then Joanna. 
Uh, hi. <clears throat> I uh, look back with uh, Jacob and uh, Shimon and Levy, where we were, um, he was worried about us stinking to the uh, Canaanites, and it's the same lahav isheni, I mean, mm. it's the same verb. Right. So I, I thought I'd bring that up if that might help with um, our explaining things. It was um, 34 very reason, and 30. It's the very reason why some people translate this as related to reputation. Yeah, I'll bring it up for everybody quickly. 3430. <clears throat> second. Because um, if it's already a metaphor, and therefore it lends itself to be translated like metaphorically, right, then we might as well not have to deal with, the, some people would say, that, with, with the actual literal meaning of the words, but what it's trying to convey. By Yomar Yaakov Shimon Levi, Jacob said to Shimon Levi after they did that horrible thing, achartem oti, you've, you've, you've made it hard on me, lahavi sheni biyoshev haaretz. How is it translated? To make me odious. Odious is good, because odious both has a moral connotation and just a, also a foul smelly commentation as a result of your actions. My name, Jacob, doesn't mean what it once did because of your actions. That's Lahavish. Good. More, Rick? Um, no, I just, I was going to point out that it, it, it's not a vision thing there. It's not to the eyes, Correct. eyes of Pharaoh, the eyes of his servants. And um, anyway, the anyway. Yeah, correct. There's no mixed metaphor there. It's just the verb Lahavisheni. Uh, Joanna. So I want to pick off exactly where Rick left off. Um, last week, Larry put an interesting comment in the chat about, you know, do we know who's speaking here? And that intrigued me. And um, I've been thinking about it all week, actually. And um, I agree that the obvious read seems to be when you read it at first glance that it's um, that it's the show dreamers who are speaking, but I want to make, um, and with a little trepidation, because I looked for commentators who would suggest that it's Moshe and Aharon speaking here, and I couldn't find any. So with a little trepidation, I want to make a case that it's Moshe and Aharon speaking here. And what? Whom would they be speaking to? They are speaking to the show dream. It's not the show dream speaking to Moshe and Aharon. It's Moshe and Aharon speaking to the show dream. Okay. Um, and I want to do it in two ways. And the first way is um, by a comparison to the, um, to the episode that Rick just brought up. Um, because... I came to it having lain parshat vayishlach. I had looked up this word when I lained it because I didn't know it. So I remembered it and it took me back there. And I think if you give a high level summary to both episodes, you can give the same summary for both that story and this one. Um, that story the story of Shem and, the sto and chapter five. Something bad has happened in the relationship with a foreign nation. So the head of B'nai Yisrael, Jacob and Breshit, Moshe and Aharon here, go to meet with the head of said foreign nation. Mid-level leaders, Shimon and Levi in Breshit, the Shotrim here, get involved in that meeting. Meeting over and later, without the approval of the head, the mid-level leaders return and 
create havoc in a situation. Hmm. And very interestingly, the use of the sword here, and I feel like in the Shimon episode, it goes out of their way to repeat several times that they killed the men of the city with a sword. By the way, like as an aside, possibly maybe echoing what's going to happen in the 10th plague later on. Um, and what happens if we read this as Moshe and Aharon speaking here, then in both episodes, the head rebukes the mid-level leaders by using this language of you've made me stinky. Mm. Um, and what's interesting is I looked up in BDB, as you did, the usage of this word. It's here um, in Brasheet. It's in our story in Chapter 5. As you brought up, it's going to come up in the plagues and also with the mana left over. When things are left over, they stink. And after the Exodus story, this word disappears from Torah. So... I think there's a, a, a strong linkage. And as a postscript to both stories, what happens after the Shimon, um, the Shem story, Jacob goes to Betel, where Hashem reveals himself to Jacob. What's the postscript to this story? Sinai, where Hashem reveals himself to Moshe. Mm -hmm. So I think there are a number of very strong parallels. The second case that I want to make is going back to 5.3, um, because Moshe and Aharon have already used similar, similar language. In 5.3, they say to Paro, if you don't listen to us, what's going to happen? If you don't let us go, Hashem is going to strike us dead with a sword. With the root yifka'enu, which is the same as vayifka'u, it just happened in the previous verse. Right, right. And the, the shotrim are not yet there. The shotrim are not going to appear until verse 6. So this feels to me like Moshe and Aharon language. And they're, they're saying to the shotrim kind of like an inversion of what they had said to Paro. And I think perhaps the message is, you know, you're interfering too much. Like, And in fact, in both episodes, too much interference. There's a very fine needle that's being thread here in both stories in terms of where we need the, these foreigners in relationship with us, right? And they don't want to anger Paro too much because if Paro gets angry too quickly and too furiously, he's going to kill B'nai Yisrael. And Hashem has a long-range plan here that Hashem wants to carry out that you're going to end up cutting short. Like both Shimon and Levi and here the Shotrim are messing up the plan. So all of this coming soon to you in a Jewish quarterly review article that Joanna will be writing up, because what, 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 what beautiful work and research, um, particularly the connection to Shrem. I think, I, I'm so moved by the read, I think it does challenge the connection between verse 21 and verse 22, because just to look ahead for a second, verse 22 is Moshe going back to God, and as if Moshe is taking to God the complaint that was just given to him, right? Hey, God, I've just heard from my folks. They're really un unhappy. Why are you doing this to us? And you have to add in something if Moshe is this, Moshe and Aaron are the speaker in verse 21, and then also the ones uh, Moshe speaking to God in verse 22. It's not impossible. It's just not as fluid. But, I, but the connections that you're making through, this is a very Buberian, through the word and very Gzera Sheva, right? This is exactly what 
how how um, the midrash made the connection in the previous verse about nitzavim. You're doing through baash, and therefore linking stories that we wouldn't necessarily be thinking about. We're not thinking about shem and dina here, but maybe we ought to be. So I really really appreciate that that inquiry and research. Um, I see Renee's hand, but someone also wrote. Oh, I have one question, Joanna. What exactly did the show stream do to cause a problem? So, Professor Sasson, what's your answer? <laughs> um, like in this read, I think you know they're meddling with the plan. They're they're getting Pharaoh's guard up too quickly, too fast, and if he becomes too angry and and starts carrying out this plan too soon, Hashem is not going to be able to bring about all the 10 plagues and the redemption. And, you know, there's an understanding, like, why didn't Hashem just redeem the people right away? Why the te- why all the drama of the 10 plagues? Because Hashem wanted to show Paro his true might and for Paro to understand who Hashem was. So that needs time to play out. And if, you know, if they anger Paro too quickly and too much, um, and he does this thing where he, you know, Moshe and Aaron are anticipating that Paro maybe is going to kill us all with a sword. It's going to be the end of us. We're not going to be able, you know, Hashem has a plan here. We, you know, in the way that a very fine relationship is being cultivated with Hamor in the Shem's story, a very fine balance in equilibrium. So too here. Yeah. Right. And remember, when we read the verse ourselves, we were saying, hey, how did the Shotrim gain access? How did they have an f- audience with Pharaoh? Isn't that Moshe and Aaron's job? Right. When you look just the basic shot in verse, um, verse 15, by Paro, that the Shotrim came to Pharaoh and started shouting out. We both asked, we both wondered, like, how did they get access? How did, how did Pharaoh permit it? How did Motion Aaron permit it? Did Motion Aaron permit it? So I think there is room in the logic of the story to, 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 to kind of help Joanna's answer back to Larry or Diana who ever asked it to say, what are, the, what are the middle managers doing with the emperor? And that may have been uh, an affront. Uh, Renee and then Norm. I just wanted to say that Everett Fox agrees with Professor Joanna. Um, he says that uh, expression meaning the cause of hatred or horror, giving a sword into their hand, that this scenario often occurs historically with liberators. Initial attempts fail or are rejected, and that we have a replay of Moshe's earlier efforts. Note the use of judge there as well in 2.14. Tension in this chapter may be said to revolve around whether God's sword or Pharaoh's will prevail. Yeah, and can you just, I don't have my Everfox with me where I am. Can you just read Everfox's translation of the verse? Sure. It's, um, okay. they said to them, colon, may uh, God see you and judge for having made our small reek in the eyes of Pharaoh and in the eyes of his servants, giving a sword into their hand to kill us. So Everfox is also weighing in that the the order is not the way Larry originally suggested it, which is you've made us weak even more, and that's giving them even more of a rationale or pretense to kill us. Yeah. Um, by the way, so far, and I see your hand, Norm Rachel, we haven't really dealt with the first part of the verse about may God see you and judge. That also raises the question as to how we would understand uh, Joanna's perush, right? Most of the show team 
statement may judge kind of judge you harshly for having had the audacity to get in between maybe, but that's an interesting phrase, right? It's whoever speaking is like calling down God's wrath on the people who have just done something wrong. So if it's Moshe and Aaron saying it to the Shoftim saying, you went in trying to fix, you're, you're blaming us for having gone in and trying to fix things. You also went in and tried to fix things. God's going to judge you for that, right? Or I pray that God judge me. God smite you down. Um, Norm, Rachel. Certainly there's not an easier relationship between Moshe and Aaron on the one hand and the Israelite leaders or the Israelites generally on the other hand. Um, and But it does make sense that as things seem to be going south, Moshe's next action, as we see in the next verse, is to go to God and kvetch, um, because he didn't redeem us, at least not yet. And um, I think that the verse can be read in such a way that Moshe reaches this conclusion in the course of his discussion with the show train. Interesting. Wait, let me say something. Okay. Um, a very different note, but uh, Joanna's comment about the Shotrim going directly to Paro, I just thought if you were staging this, the Shotrim would be the Greek chorus, and they would be going in and kind of saying their lines collectively and then backing off the stage and Moshe and Aharon would become center stage to Paro and then to God. Yeah, that's great. That's One great. final thing I posted in chat, a link to the bird's head of God. Yeah. Thank you, Norm. Barbara wants to know why Rashi doesn't comment on this verse, right? It's, it's always an interesting question when Rashi doesn't. We don't know. Did he, was he napping? Did he find it self-explanatory? You know, we're not, we're not necessarily always bothered or made curious by the same things Rashi is. So Rashi says nothing. Um, I just want to know, Barbara, is there, a, is there a dog at your feet? Right now he's outside. I tried to show him to you at the beginning, but you didn't uh, see it. Okay, good. I Thanks. had him on my lap. He's very heavy. <laughs> Give him a hug for me. Do you, do you want Saperstein's um, read on this on this verse? Sure. And then I want to go forward. It said, they said to them, may Hashem look upon you and judge, for you have made our very scent abhorrent in the eyes of Pharaoh and the eyes of serv his servants to place the sword in their hands to murder us. Good. Exclamation point. So no, no one wanted to speak too much about the judge part. I do want to just point out to you that Uncleus uh makes an interpretive translation by saying it, it, um actually tw he twice twice makes an interpretive translation in the opening part of this verse the second one i find more interesting than the first one so if you look at uncleus but amarulahon he they said to them so so this is an interpretive translation instead of saying may god um, may God look upon you. It's may God reveal God's self upon you, right? So it's almost like not may God see, but may God be seen to you, right? He's reading Yere almost as a Nifa, like as if it's like, you know, Yiyare Alecha, may God be seen to you. And then there is a good Aramaic word for to judge. It isn't Yitpara. Yitpara means punish you and pay you back. Uncle is renders. Yishpot as viyitpara, 
meaning make, God is going to make you pay for this, which is sort of implied by judge, but it's not explicit. And Uncleus in the translation just jumps us over that uh, translational gap into God's going to punish you for this. Now, it's interesting to leave that hanging in either of the inter- two interpretations. If it's Moses and Aaron say, saying, saying it to the Shotrim, are they invoking God's name in vain? Or is there some punishment of the Shotrim that we're not aware of? Right. So if we have to think about this as a as a punishment that is due to the whoever's meddling here, when does that ever happen, if ever? Diane, Larry. So while I admire um, Joanna's uh, explanation, um, and it's interesting and worthwhile, I think if we step back for a moment again and look at the arc of the story, in the end of the last chapter, Moses and Aaron met with the elders. The elders were not working. The elders weren't the overseers. The elders are the, the political echelon of the Hebrew people. Then Moses and Aaron meet with the Pharaoh. And then, as you pointed out later on, after the order is given and, and, the, and, the, and the, the Hebrew overseers are beaten, they come in and they say to Pharaoh, because they're, they're, they have nothing to do with what happened between Moses and the elders and even between Moses and Pharaoh. And they're saying to him, what we've already expressed, you know, why are you doing this? What's going on? And then basically they're told to get out of there by the Pharaoh and life's going to go on. And when they meet Moses and Aaron, have never having met Moses and Aaron before or encountered them before, all of their pent up anger and frustration pours out. And they're saying, you really screwed things up. Before you came, everything was relatively fine. Mm. And God is going to punish you. Because we have a completely different different conception of who Yudhei Vavhei, our God, is than what you're bringing to us. Yeah, you you've turned a tolerable enslavement into an intolerable one, as it were. There you go, and I and there are ma- there are myriad stories about that yeah. about slaves who are basically apologists for their own for their own system and don't want to revolt because they fear what will happen. It's interesting what you what you say makes me. Oh, there's Paddington. Hi, Paddington. Hi, Paddington, baby. <laughs> For those who are wondering what's happening, Barbara is watching my dog while I'm out of town. So Paddington is is studying Rashi. And she's spoiling your dog. We hear, we heard those stories. No, normally Paddington likes Ramban, but today he's doing Rashi. Um, I'm thinking of the inverse of that, uh, Larry, um, in one of the things that happens in uh, Palestinian uh, politics and um, and cultural things. There are forces in Palestinian society who are trying to make things easier for the Palestinians living in East Jerusalem or the West Bank. And there are hardcore voices in the Palestinian society who get angry at the ones who are trying to make things easier. How dare you make things easier to turn an intolerable occupation into a tolerable occupation because that's going to lull us to sleep. We actually want to maintain its intolerableness so that it can end, right? I remember trying to take this in when I was an encounter, people who refuse to participate in Jerusalem municipal elections, which might mean that Palestinians have more representation on, 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 on Jerusalem's municipal politics to impact things like sewage and garbage removal, because that is um, normalizing the occupation, even if it makes things easier and more tolerable short term to them, 
it may it, it has a greater chance of perpetuating what they consider to be the long-term injustice. So you can imagine the arguments going both ways. How dare you take something that we was not great, but we we're tolerating it and making intolerate intolerable? And how dare you try to soften something which needs to be eliminated, not needs to be softened, right? Um, okay. Uh, let's first go to verse 21. Rebecca, you got no Rashi, so you get to read the next one. Sorry, verse 22. And look, we're in the Moft here. We're the Moftir of, of Parshat Shmos. Mm-hmm. Okay. Vayashav Moshe El Adonai Vayomar Adonai Lama Hareota Laam Hazeh Lama Zeh Shalachtani. And Moses returned to God and he said, Lord, why have you uh, why have you caused uh, ill badness to this people? Why why have you sent me? Good. Okay. So we have to ask ourselves: Are we seeing? Are we being told something spatial here when it says that Moshe returned to God? Does that mean he returned conceptually to being back in conversation with God? Is there a, a place? In Goshen, where Moshe is speaking with God, we don't know. It, it does mean indeed return, right? Um, uh, if it was different vowels and it was Vayashev, it would have meant that Moshe kind of re- returned to God, not a- as a transitive verb, brought back to God the contentions of the Israelites who had just spoken to him, but it's not Vayashev, it's Vayashov. Uh, and he said to him, my Lord, why have you made Ra, made evil, made harsh, to this people, why have you sent me? Let's go this direction to kind of lead the witness a bit What que- um, and see if, if by doing it this way, we can uh, induce the questions that Rashi may have in this verse. What question might you have on this verse? Anyone? Rick? Well, I don't like that he says Lam Hazeh instead of my people or our people, saying hmm. this, this people, I, I don't particularly like that, that Moses is excluding himself from that, but um, that's just a first reaction. Okay, so it seems to be that there's a distancing between Moshe and the people. Another question. Question not answered. What question do you have in this verse? Why did you send me on this journey to begin with? Well, that is indeed the question that Moshe is asking God. I'm asking you, what is your question on that? Uh, Norm, Rachel? Um, I think... Moshe seems to be blaming God rather than blaming Pharaoh. And how or why is he doing that? I'm seeing it much more as uh, a why me? Why did you throw me into this mess? Right. So what's your question on that? I want, I, I, I want, so for the now, for the, for the next few minutes, I want to hear people's questions on the verse, not your take on the verse. Subtle difference. But that's that's interesting, right? That 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 Moshe's why meing himself a bit, and yeah, it's Moshe turned selfish. Yeah, most of Moshe's role in all the parshiot is this very stately leader who is um, navigating between the people and God, and here for a moment. We see a different view of Moshe. 
Right. So, the, so uh, to questionize that, you might say, why at the end of this verse does Moshe separate his experience from the people's experience and sort of accuse God of being responsible for the troubles in both of those categories, right? Yeah. Um, and why is he blaming Moshe? Why is he blaming God rather than blaming the tyrant, which is Pharaoh? Barry, and then Alan, and then Joanna. Uh, from the very beginning of God's interaction with Moshe, uh, Moshe has not been a part of this people, um, and he has no part with God. Um, so why why did he call upon Moshe to begin with, and and, and now why is God doing this? Um, what's Moshe's role? Okay. What's, what's Moshe's position? That's okay. my question. Alan, uh, I I get the sense from looking at this, it says that God, you're making things worse. I go and follow your word. I go speak to Pharaoh like you're asking. It only makes things worse. Why'd you bother sending me if all you're going to do is to send me to have to do this stuff and make things worse and worse? Right. You're all giving great interpretations of the verse. I want to know what questions you have about the verse. Like all of your interpretations are wonderful. Like that's one way of like massaging why the verse is there. I want to know, is there anything about the verse that raises a question for you? The kind of a question that Rashi might, uh, might ask. I'm interested in both, but I want to first also lay out some of the questions. Joanna. So in Moses's long time with God at the burning bush, Moses, in fact, had already asked God all of these questions. Everything he's asking here had already been addressed at the burning bush. Moses was apprised of what the plan was going to be. Why does Moshe need to question God here? He knew that this was the plan. Good. Right. What, 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 why, should, why should Moshe be so surprised that this is what's going on if this was given to him in advance? Barry? We don't hear you yet, Barry. Sorry. Uh, why is Moshe, for the first time, addressing God as Adonai, my Lord? Is that all, the previous, all previous in, instances, Moshe has been as a separate individual from God. Now it's Adonai. Why? So what, what, what name for God has Moshe, Moshe been using, Barry? I don't think Moshe's really just addressed God before. It's always, uh, well, will you show me? Will you show that? How will this be? How will that be? Uh, Moshe's never addressed God, I don't think. So you're saying, why does like why do we have the God's name within the quotation marks? We actually hear Moshe saying to God, God. Is that the question? As, as, as Adonai, my Lord. He's addressed, my Lord. I, um, that's interesting. I ha I'd have to go back and see if that's happened before, but it certainly doesn't ring a bell. So why do, why does God why does Moshe use God's name? Like it's it's the difference between my just asking somebody a question and my starting that question by by with the name, right? Good and personalizing personalizing it as Adonai, Adonai, my my Lord, right, right, Adonai, which is how we. Um, pronounce yud heh vav -Hey, but there's also the word Adonai, Aleph Dalad Nun Yud, which means my individual Lord. So far, and this is great, none of you have asked the question that Rashi asked, which will make Rashi's commentary even more interesting. Um, anything else? Uh, let me point out one thing on the verse, and then we'll can go to the Rashi. Um, that verb hareyota, right, the he feel of, of Ra. Ra means evil, bad, or hard. Hareyota, why have you made things evil for this people? We last saw that root 
back in verse 19. It was a very hard time translating that word, even though we knew essentially what it meant, that the officers in Israel saw them, you know, wallowing in Ra, you know, uh, wallowing in hard things. And now we have it again, Moshe accusing God of creating the situation that the Shotrim saw, meaning creating the situation that the Shotrim saw that had them go to Pharaoh, which had them get Pharaoh's response, which had them either complain to Moshe and Aaron or be complained to by Moshe and Aaron, the previous verse, such that we're now having this second, this yet another encounter between God and, and Moshe. So we're, we can link those, those Ra's. Okay. Um, then let's jump to the Rashi and um, we'll, we'll reawaken Rebecca to, uh, to read. Uh, Lama harayota la'am hazeh. So why have you uh, caused evil to this people? V'im tomar ma ikpat lach kovel ani al sheshlachtani. Okay. And if you will say, what concern is it of yours? Right. And about what would you say? What concern of is it is it to your of yours? Like what the mach which means why do you care? Who is that addressed to inside Rashi's commentary? Moshe is addressing it to God. No. No. It, that's why it's it's confusing. So Rashi oh, God would say to Moshe. And if God would say, What concern is it of yours? Why should you be concerned? Right. Or if we, the reader, would say to Moshe, what, what, like, why should you care so much about what's happening to the people? Going back to the, uh, what someone said before about this distancing between Moshe and the people, right? Well, the answer is, ani al Anyone know what the, what the Hebrew word or is it, uh, is it um, I don't know if it's pointed kobel or kobal. Anyone have the pointed edition? Whatever it is, it's it's from the root lekabel, the kovel, kovel. Okay. Anyone know what that means? It doesn't just mean receive, even though it looks like it. It basically means to to levy a critique, to call someone out. To um, it's very hard to make sense of the meaning of the word with the with the root of the word, but. Basically, Moshe has a response to anyone, God or us, would ask him, why are you so concerned about what's going to happen to these people? He says, well, I'm calling you out also that you sent me to care for them, right? Now, here's the double jeopardy question. What's Rashi's question on the question, on the verse, such that this is his answer? Rashi's always answering a question. What's Rashi's question? Barry? Why is Moshe concerned? That's... Ra- Rashi brings up that question in his. This is God's. This is God's story. Moshe, what, what, what are you? What are you worried about, Moshe? What in the verse is troubling Rashi? There's something in the verse that Rashi is being specifically sensitive to, such that he gives this as an answer. It, it, it's it, it's kind of so simple and obvious that we don't necessarily see it because we don't. We're not trained to think like Rashi is all the time. Joel. Um, well, what's the what's the connection between these two these two questions? I mean, one is why have you made these people's lives miserable, and then why have you sent me? I mean, that's well, obvious. The the obvious answer would be 
Well, you sent me because their lives are miserable. So there's not a logical connection between these two sentences, these two questions. Correct. I, I think that's a hundred percent correct, right? When you lane this verse, it just seems to flow, right? Um, Moshe said to God, uh, you know, you know, why are you doing such bad things to people? Why have you sent me? And then he keeps going. And Rashi says, slow down. Those are two questions at the end of a verse that are not exactly related to one another. I don't necessarily even follow. The first question deserves its own spotlight. Why are you allowing your people who you've chosen as your people to suffer so much? That's its own question. Why have you sent me is a different question. Rashi says, ah, I'm going to connect them. Why are you doing such terrible things to your people? To which God might conceptually say, why, why should it matter, you, matter to you so much? To which God, Moshe would say, why would it matter to me so much? You sent me. You sent me to redeem them. It wouldn't have mattered to me to you so much if I was still in Midian. You've made it matter to me, right? But without that, that narrative uh, thread in between, those two questions are kind of lingering out as two different, um, two different um, pixels that, that uh, Rashi connects with that uh, interpretation. Joanna. Now that you said what you said, I'm going to pass. Okay. Norm Rachel. Um, I think, why is Moshe coming like this at all? Didn't he know before that Pharaoh wasn't simply going to immediately cave? Did he know before that it was likely that at least one significant plague would be needed, if not 10? Didn't he know that it wasn't going to be this easy and quick? Good. Good. Diane Larry. Somewhat similar. Do you still want a question or do you want to explain? I just want a question. I'm sorry? I always want a question. Well, the question is, why is Moses so heavily influenced by these overseers? Because it's not as if Moses came to God after Pharaoh had imposed the, the, the harsher work, and he had seen that. He said, oh, my God, my people are, <clears throat> are suffering, or the people are suffering, and then he turns to God. He waits until the whole thing plays out, and this is taking place over a period of time. <clears throat> And then he waits until the overseers, overseers have, um, have complained to him. And then he turns to God with their complaint. What kind of leader is this? Moses should have turned to these guys after, I'm taking my read and not Joanna's read, had turned to these guys after they said that and should have said, you do your part and let me do my part. But he doesn't. Instead, he goes back to the boss and he complains to the boss. That's a sign of a fairly weak leader yeah. or an insecure one. Yeah. Great. So you asked a question on the verse, then you answered the question, which is great, right? What, why, why is Moshe even, um, uh, what about Moshe's leadership style is making him only turn to God for relief after he's been complained to using your read over Joanna's read? I have an answer to that, which maybe that he's a sensitive leader. And when he, when he realizes just how oppressive the people he's trying to lead are experiencing reality, he says, ah, it's now gotten to a limit where we have to go back to God and, and try to uh, you know, get some benefit for them. But I can see it both. If I may, can I respond to that one? You may. Without involving this group in a discussion Diane and I have been having for the past several days, that's one of the problems. Sensitivity yeah. and inclusion, et cetera, are all well and good, but haven't we gone overboard? Isn't Moses going overboard and not recognizing there's a time to be sensitive to concerns and there's a time to act. Yeah. And there's a time to take the responsibility as a leader and to say, this is what we have to do. 
And I don't have to, I don't, I don't want to listen to and act upon everyone's voice when I'm acting in the interest of the whole. And so I think Moses should have been a stronger leader in this, in this case, at least in this mini scenario, rather than going back to his boss and saying, wow, the people are really unhappy. Why did you do this? Yeah. I mean, this would be a great, this would be a great set of texts to lay out at a leadership conference, right? And to see how people naturally, you know, choose which leader they would want and which leader they would want to be. And by the way, we may not all want to be the same leader that we would want if we were the ones being led. I see four hands and it's 1229. Let's do 30 seconds each of Barry, Joel, Barbara, Joanna, and we'll end class. Moshe is not yet a leader. He doesn't recognize himself as a leader. He's an errand boy. Mm-hmm. And uh, something he didn't want to do to begin with. And um, so, so saying, what do you have to do with this? This is not for you. Good. Good. Joel? Well, I think he did expect it to be a more linear, linear uh success story that you know he he was he's doing this because he's trying to make their lives better and the first thing he does is make their lives worse so he's saying why why are you making their lives worse now and i think the 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 insertion of the word zeh is important it says he doesn't say lama shalach shalach tani he says lama zeh shalach tani is this is this why you sent me to make their lives worse Joel, that's great. I think that is the best interpretation of the verse that doesn't involve Rashi's interpretation. I think that's true. Like, if you want to read it as not needing Rashi's interpolation, it's why, why have you made it so evil for, for, for them? And, 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 is, and is this what you sent me to do? And then you can read it all the way through. And I think, I think that's actually a, a great read. Uh, Barbara and then Joanna. I think that God was able to push Moshe around and get him to go do his bidding, to go to Pharaoh to beg for the release of the Jews. But I think if he hadn't been harsh, allowed the Jews to be treated, but excuse me, the Hebrews to be treated harshly, they might not have wanted to have left Egypt. Hmm. So I think that the Hebrews had to be treated harshly because then they're going to want to get away. They're going to want to leave when Hashem deems it time for them to leave. Yeah. Yes. I'll, I'll, I'll leave that comment there and just say a heavy yes to that. And then Joanna, and then don't leave everybody because I have one logistical announcement after Joanna's comment. So just as a follow-up to my previous comments about how this already happened at the burning bush and also this concept of Moshe being an insecure leader, right? How do you build security? You revisit something time and time again until, you know, you work it through. Because looking ahead a few verses, everything God is going to say to Moshe in the next few verses, he also already told um, Moshe at the burning bush. So there's this sense of insecurity and God having to come back and, and repeat what, you know, to build up Moshe, basically. Very good. Great. We will pick up next week on verse 23. Next week is like this week, all on Zoom. Have a great few days, everybody. See you soon. Kol tuf. You have been listening to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. If you enjoy these podcasts, we invite you to write a review on the Apple Podcast site or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about Temple Beth Am Los Angeles, go to tbala.org.